happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school that is uh, headquartered on the University of Montana campus in lovely Missoula, Montana. And this is episode 121 of the EdTech Situation Room on January 9th, 2019. And joining me, as always, Dr. Dr. West Fryer. Good evening, Dr. Fryer. How are you this evening? I have been riding a roller coaster of uh, life events, which I will not be disclosing publicly, but have been quite challenging. And there's there's good good things amidst all kinds of, of roller coaster events. But I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School, and I I don't I mean I have a crazy January, but you. Dr. Neifer may may be in the more more challenging role, um, you know, and, and so anyway, I just know it's a crazy time of year. I'm delighted to sit down and talk about technology news because for me, this is a lovely treat each week. And if if others are able to uh, learn it all and enjoy from what we're talking about, that's icing on the cake. But I'm I'm just happy to be here. So. Right, as am I. And for those of you joining us for the first time tonight, first welcome to the EdTech Situation Room podcast. We are a weekly look at technology news, and we try to kind of shoot it through an educational prism because we know that if you're in schools in any capacity, that technology is a topic of interest to you and your students or your teachers or your administrators or however you plug into your individual school or school system. And Wes and I have some experiences we like to share and a little bit of, of a point of view, I think, when it comes to technology news. And by the way, if you're interested, every link we talk about each week on the show is available at our website at techsr.com. And we have extensive show notes, I think, that go into almost probably hundreds of pages at this point of links going all the way back to episode one uh, a couple years back. So um, in light of it's actually a very heavy technology week uh, because of the lovely uh, CES conference in fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. But before we get to that stuff, there's some breaking news in the technology world. And actually, it's 24-hour breaking news, so let's not get too excited about the breaking news bumper. 9to5 Google reports on January 8th, 2019 that after the markets have done Dealt with the Apple shock, and of course, they're talking about last week's announcements by Apple that they expect quarter one uh, uh, revenue and profits to go way down. Um, Samsung has announced the exact same thing: the quarter four sales, which will be fiscal year or fiscal quarter one, um, was off by or billions of dollars of estimates by Wall Street. And the South Korean company uh, believes that their profit is going to go way down, their income is going to go way down, but possibly um, uh, trillions of Korean won or $10 billion lower than it was just a year ago. And the reason why this is interesting to me is because there's, there's something going on right now, and if you have listened to the podcast before, you've heard us talk about a term that we refer to as the technology correction. That has to do more with social networking and software and privacy and how we engage with our devices. But in my humble opinion, there is very much a movement now that suggests that the kind of having the new hotness in regards to technology or the need to have bigger, faster, more and better um, is starting to wane a little bit, both because I think technology uh, companies are having a harder time creating faster, more, and better because of the correction of something called Moore's Law, which we'll talk about in, in a couple of moments. But it, I think it's harder now to justify the expense uh, to keep up with the latest technology because the price is becoming very expensive and the returns of updated devices are becoming less and less so. So first and foremost, I know, Wes, you've, you've talked about it in the past, but why don't you describe for us uh, the whole notion of Moore's Law? Okay, there you go. Setting me up well. Uh, so Gordon Moore, who worked for Intel, uh, came up with a very famous observation that was basically the... Uh, you know, processing power and speed of microchips would double, which is an, an exponential or logarithmic change pattern every, I think, 18 months, while the price would, you know, be cut in half. 
I think that's it. Look it up on Wikipedia. But it's ba- is that that that's ba- it's basically an exponential change curve <clears throat> that that has been you know pretty consistent over a couple decades. And, and again, like you know, look look it up in, in terms of exactly when this happened. But it's been going on for a long, long time. And there have been different reasons why it's been sustained. We've heard and seen people, you know, make predictions time and time again. It's over. Moore's Law is over. It's done. You'll hear people now talk about how many nanometer processors that, you know, are possible. And that's how many, you know, how, how big the, the chips are and, and how many transistors, you know, can fit on a chip. It really is unbelievable, right? I mean, technology always, each one of us has a limit to where it becomes a black box and it's opaque. And, like, we couldn't be creating that. There's so many things today that, like, you know, if we had a, you know, uh, our, uh, apocalyptic event with a with a solar flare or, you know, some kind of nuclear exchange or whatever, we're having to rebuild society from scratch. Like, you know, it's... There, there is so much high tech that is in, in so much. And, you know, if Jason and I are given a few hand tools, we're not going to be able to rebuild, you know, the, the tools that are letting us talk to you tonight. So Moore's law has been a, a tremendous engine of change for the technology landscape. Um, it has given, you know, allowed in, in really the passage of just a few years, computers going from room size devices, um, that had relatively today, paltry, you know, capabilities to, you know, the, the smartphones of today, whatever mine is, um, you know, which is far more processing power than, than NASA had. We landed on the moon. That's another favorite thing to say about this. And, uh, you know, cheaper and cheaper. So I would introduce a term that I, I just been thinking of today. Maybe someone else has already coined it based off of peak oil, which is this idea that some people say, ah, oh, we've reached the, the maximum amount of oil production in the country. Well, thanks to, you know, fracking and and uh things like that we're we're doing a lot more oil production but i think it's it's peak smartphone like this particular platform <clears throat> with processors and capability and and photos and things i think perhaps there's a case to be made that we've been pushed to a peak smartphone spot not only in the saturation of the market in terms of i mean we're not in developing markets there's more growth potential, but we're, we're seeing a drop off in the number of purchases and certainly in the, 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 the ways that people are persuaded every 18 months to two years, you know, or sooner or whatever to, to get a new device. So probably too lengthy of, a, of an answer, but am I, am I on the mark more or less with Moore's law? Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and I think that there's, there's something going on here that, that relates to our discussion of technology correction. And I'm reminded of last week's news about Apple saying that they've sold less new iPhones than they expected. Uh, there's a CNET article from today that talks about how Apple is going to scale back iPhone production by 10% for the first quarter, which comes on the heels of last week's report that they're just not selling these, these wonderful, uh, advanced and very expensive devices. And then there was a really great article article, uh, an article that actually inspired some conversation on Twitter related to this topic, but basically uh, the New York Times, Kevin Rose, the founder of Dig, and uh, um, 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 can't remember the second thing he's the founder of, it is Revision 3, uh, the the uh, e-television network, which is unfortunately no longer around. Uh, Kevin Rose wrote a really great article in the New York Times that basically said that Apple's biggest problem right now is his mom, and his mom, who was a very technical savvy uh, woman in her in, in her working days is now retired and she has a three-year-old iPhone 6s that's missing many of the latest features that that iPhones offer but for her it's just good enough and it doesn't seem justified for her to spend a thousand dollars twelve hundred dollars fourteen hundred dollars on a new phone when her three-year-old phone is doing just fine and as it turns out I have the same story around my family as well. My mom is using an iPhone 5S and it's working just fine. My dad's using a four-year-old, five-year-old Android device that works just fine. My mother-in-law has a six, uh, iPhone 6. My father-in-law has an iPhone 6. My wife has an iPhone 6S. And in an era where we're not offered uh, carrier subsidies anymore. We're on uh, my rest of my family, other than than my phone plans on Verizon, which no longer has phone subsidies anymore. It ended actually the year after uh, my entire family updated. It just doesn't seem to make sense to pay eight hundred, a thousand dollars to update these devices, especially in a world where legitimately or not, you can change the battery out and get uh, you know fresh battery um, for those devices. And 
And, uh, you know, all of these things together, the fact that I think people are reconsidering their relationship with their devices, the devices themselves, there isn't a lot of return on spending twelve, fourteen hundred dollars $1,400 on a new device, even though it may have a higher resolution screen or it has a better... Um, uh, uh, a better uh, or faster processor or maybe a esoterically better Wi-Fi connection. You know, it's wireless AC as opposed to wireless G or N or whatever happens to be on your phone, that it's just harder to see the returns on the massive investment in technology. So, Wes, I know you purchase phones for a family, so you are very aware of this market. Or do these seem sound familiar to you? Absolutely. There's other elements to this, but, you know, my choice of going Android for nine months was a direct result of saying this is freaking ridiculous for Apple to charge that much for a phone. I, I love Apple technology. I always have. But Apple pushed it too far with the profit taking for our family specifically, um, you know, thanks to the generosity of, uh, of another family member. I mean, I'm, I'm on a seven now instead of a six S. But this is a very capable phone. Um, over the holidays, we actually bumped our youngest daughter from a 5S to a 6S. But, you know, it is great. And we're, and I think, well, I don't, whatever, she could hear it. I mean, it's like 250 bucks, right? 200, $230, $240. Um, that's still an expensive device to yeah. get a ninth grader. Um, but you know, the, the used market today, and, and also I'll just say the return on investment or just the, 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 the um, enduring value, which I guess is another way of saying return on investment, like an old iPhone today, uh, it can, especially like you mentioned with, you know, you can slap a new battery in there. That's the real wild card. Yeah. It scratches and things like that, but with a new battery, um, anyway, it just, it works great. And so I totally believe to answer your question that as a family, you know, we crossed that threshold where dad said, I, it is, it is financially um, irresponsible of me as the, you know, one of the parents in this household to insist, I must have the latest phone and be on the cutting edge. Um, and, and I know that that's happened for a lot of people. Apple pushed it too far and people have, you know, have said, you know, that's, it's too much for me as far as the cost, but at the same time, the processing power and just the capability of smartphones has gotten to the point where it's like, you know, upgrade, really? Why? Because I don't, I don't have to have faster and the, the features and the things like that that are being added on here really don't sway me to say I've got to get something new. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and, and I think that there's some related articles when we jump into this week's kind of more episodic news about uh, the Consumer Electronics Show or CES. But, you know, I think in the last year, you could see evidence of this elsewhere. Microsoft, you know, desperate to push out updates because that's their new system, right? It's, it's, it's updates every six months. There's a fresh operating system available to you and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, uh, during the second update cycle, it just broke. Like it literally deleted data off of people's computers because the focus was on new over better and uh, or value for, for the end point of consumer. And, you know, I would say that even the, the techies I know aren't in the two year update cycle anymore for phones. They're not. I tend to think that it's reasonable to have a three year update cycle for laptops or desktop computers. Um, I've come to the point where I'm ignoring my fascination with new Chromebooks like I I at work, I've got a two-year-old laptop that's that's chugging along just fine. I've got a, a five-year-old uh, desktop at work that's chugging along just fine. Um, I have a Windows Home desktop that, that was kind of a gaming machine purchase uh, three and a half years ago, but there's just no reason to update it, right? The none, zero, zero reason to update it. And I think that's becoming a, a piece of this, right? Like, I think the fascination of newer, faster is, is just doesn't make as much sense anymore. Um, and and the other article I dropped into here, um, there is a uh, there was a keynote address at uh, CES, the Consumer Electronics Show. It is the CEO of NVIDIA, which is a chipset maker for video cards, who said that basically Moore's law is it just it doesn't make sense anymore. It no longer exists in the way we expected it to do, even even just a, a handful of years ago, and that it's impossible now to expect the cheaper technology to come out as uh, twice as fast or even. Uh, 
50% faster or 150% faster. It's just those curves are really no longer going to be in existence. And it's going to mean that the market's going to look very different and uh, kind of, you know, spinning back for a moment to an educational uh, uh, a twist on this, I think this is probably great news for technology purpose or purchasing for schools because um, things just aren't going to get out of date as quickly as they do now. And, um, you know, I think about it in terms of a lot has happened in the last four or five years in, in computers. Uh, if you go back and, and look at 2012, 13, 14 computers, they were a lot thicker. The batteries were a lot bigger. We are now with thinner machines, with bigger, smaller batteries and better battery life. There's clearly differences between then and now. But when it comes to the functionality of those devices, I really question, you know, if the investment is really worth it like it might have been updating every three to four years during, let's say, you know, 2000 to 2008 or so. So, you know, very much a big change in the way we engage with technology and, you know, how we look at purchasing and, and cycles of how technology works in our schools and lives. So I think we're at peak smartphone, and I want to uh, point people back to a, an article, or really it's a, a blog post, I think, on Medium by Robert Scoble from last week called iOS 2022. And it's his vision of a Tim Cook Apple keynote in a few years where they introduce the next transformative product, which is going to be glasses that we wear, think um, sort of Ready Player One, uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, and in anything, any part of our, our vision field can become a screen. The entire thing, a small part, a large part, gone will be the days of, okay, I have to have dual monitors. I'm just going to put on my glasses. <clears throat> You're seeing huge investments in augmented reality as well as virtual reality by companies. And you can hear, you know, hear and read lots of different opinions about that and which one is going to be bigger. But I think we're up to speak smartphone. I think that um, the next big thing is going to be something which redefines, you know, interactively how we literally peer into the virtual world. That article by Robert Scoble is the best, you know, vision piece that I've read in a long time. But in addition to all of this, I want to point us to something we mentioned in the show last week about Apple's announcement on profits and then some articles about China. Um, and part of why I love, you know, getting together with Jason is not only like getting aware of a whole slew of articles and news that I, you know, that I missed and, and his analysis, but it's the challenge I have each week of doing some reading, but also like peering into the future. Cause I feel like that's part of what our show challenges me to do uh, and us to do is to, you know, connect dots and, you know, Amy Webb, by the way, is one of my favorite futurists that I discovered this last year. And that's what she talks about in terms of being a futurist is you're looking, the signals are talking actually is the name of one of her books. And you're trying to see, you know, what is a true trend and, and what is something that's going to be worth, you know, paying attention to, investing in, working on, and then what can you ignore? So last week we mentioned that Tim Cook had, um, you know, kind of blamed China for these deflated uh, projections that Apple is going to is going to have lower sales, and I the articles that I read I think we included in the show notes were talking about you know deflated sales because of the same mom issue that it's just too expensive for a lot of folks to justify you know what an iPhone is going to cost, um, and so that same calculation that's happening in in U.S. households is happening in in, uh, in other households around the the world. But it's also about supply chains, and it's about a war that is being fought right now between uh, Huawei, the, the uh, I think now largest smartphone manufacturer on the planet. Is that is that right? I mean, are they is that what is that what they eclipsed? Anyway, I'm putting you on the spot. And I, we'll have to look that up. I mean, Huawei is yeah. massive. Uh, largest, you know, Chinese uh, company in, in the smartphone business and and what's happening in terms of trade. So um, the article I want to point out for this week, there's actually two of them. Um, the new one is the Council on Foreign Relations from December 26th, China, Huawei, and the coming technological Cold War. And so this is 
talking about how, and we've talked about these articles, but it's kind of, you know, you hear these news things and you're like, okay, so what does that mean? So the chief financial officer of Huawei is under arrest in Canada because of an extradition treaty with the United States because of violations of the law. And this is like, what, what is, what is going on? Um, so this is a, a, a very contemporary article talking about, Technology Cold War, decoupling, weaponized interdependence, whatever you call it, the U.S.-China science-technology relationship is being violently remade. While a, a tightly linked technology system benefited the United States and China over the last two decades, there's now widespread concern on both sides of the Pacific that the economic and security risks outweigh the gains. And there's an article that's linked in the second paragraph of this called made and the link is made in China 2025. And so um, I'm putting the that this link, which is from March of 2018 in the show notes. The title is called Why Does Everyone Hate Made in China 2025? And I don't know about you, Jason, but I hadn't actually heard that phrase. We I think are pretty aware here in the United States, like we're having a partial government shutdown. Like this isn't the way democracy, by the way, is supposed to work. Um, and in the midst of all this are our tariffs and a trade war with China and the way in which our chief executive um, is is executing this strategy looks very blundering. It, the article, I think this from from March, calls it pugilistic, just like not focused and just, you know, pretty terrible from a strategic standpoint. And so West Fryer, as an observer of all this, has been kind of just saying, well, what's the big deal? Why? You know, isn't this as stupid as this whole border wall fight uh, with China? And so I want to encourage people to take a look at these articles, because what Made in China 2025 is, is an effort by China to um, not only, you know, bolster and build up its technological capabilities to compete with Silicon Valley, but to become dominant and to become dominant through nephorous means. And so I'm going to read real quickly um, this into this article, which ends uh, or has the phrase in it. I think, is this the one? Uh, existential threat or well, anyway, it's in there. Um, China is doing this through, uh, you know, some foreign acquisitions, but forced technology trade agreements, commercial cyber espionage, think Google leaving China um, and, and, and gaining techno technologies and know-how um, in a in a way that is going to harm global trade. That's going to you know really hurt South Korea and these other the, the Asian tigers that are so you know focused on export. Because what China wants to do is they're setting up quotas, which you're not supposed to do according to free trade agreements. Bolster their domestic production and then really you know harm. Uh, free trade. So my thought tonight is that, you know, the world is flat, uh, Friedman's book, and this, this whole vision of this wonderful interdependent world where we are, you know, walking hand in hand with, with Russia and with China and with India, because we're all going to be equal beneficiaries in this interdependent global marketplace. Folks, we are not there at all. And what is happening now between the United States and China? Um, if we think about, you know, kids in school, and I'm not, I don't, I don't think I'm being at all conspiratorial. Because by the way, the Council on Foreign Relations, which is where these two articles are from, is a, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, really like authoritative, legit. Like we're not talking about some out outlier fringe group or not and we're not looking at this going who has said this you know what website is that who registered that it's you know some joe blow uh you know in, in his in his garage running this news site um you know we're going to need a wake-up call i don't think my daughter and probably most students in school today recognize the hostility which exists currently not only in the digital landscape just in terms of of, of uh, cyber operations and and, and hacks and things we're, we're they're somewhat aware of it but i don't think they're aware of how hostile the economic relations are between the united states and china so rant you know hashtag end but i would say that is a huge contributor to what's happening right now with samsung and Apple, and this is going to have tremendous ripple effects on economic prospects, on what our companies do, um, and, and, you know, added to this is also a shift to services and things like that that's happening with Apple, but had you heard of Made in 2025, and what is your opinion today, Jason, of the, the level of hostility or cooperation between the Chinese 
government and economic in, in, in companies as well as let's say the West. Uh, well, I have heard of China 2025 only in context of stories that I've heard on NPR that relate to the trade war. So there has been a lot of, of coverage, uh, particularly uh, I, most of my, my news is, is, is NPR morning edition. I listen to it for about 45 minutes of it each morning. And there's been a lot of reference actually to China in 2025 as, as part of that context. I, I think part of the complication here is that we are engaged in hostile trading relationships with the country of China, even though both of our economies are wildly interdependent on one another. And so it's in my mind, and, and to be clear, I'm not an economist. I, I do I, I do have formal academic training in history and political science. Um, I, economics is, is a really minor interest of mine, and I have relatively little academic training in this. But I think one of the complications I keep going back to is that uh, because of the free trade movement of the last 25 years worldwide, that in the same way that, that the UK is having a real problem trying to separate itself from the European Union, the so-called Brexit movement, they're finding that once you become intertwined, it's enormously difficult to become unintertwined without substantial impact in ways that you would not estimate. And that's what I think is is frankly, very scary about uh, the kind of trade war. Like, I, I don't doubt that we need to be thinking about the winners and losers of, of, of globalization and the winners and losers of global trade. Like, I, I don't want to, to say that there is no impact, but the, the real bottom line is that here we are in 2019, and it's just not an option for us to completely divorce ourselves economically from China. So, or India, or Southeast Asia, or really uh, anywhere on Earth where there is a growing manufacturing base. And so, um, there, I think there are ways that we could start reimagining things, right? But to say that we're going to be able to cut it off cold, I think is both highly unrealistic and, um, you know, not, uh, you know, not, not very productive for dealing with the, the, the criticisms. And so when I hear about things about China's grandiose visions of, 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 you know, kind of being the, the martyr, the, the great producer of the world and being the dominant economy and letting that create world power for it. Um, I, I don't know how we mitigate that without then causing even more harm to our economy in that way. But here's the thing. The Chinese demographics and the Chinese economy is so huge and will grow so huge. <clears throat> and I would love to, hey, shout out. If you'd like to invite Jason and I to a conference in China, we'd love to visit. Because having been there four times, it makes you think so much more deeply about what is happening um, some analysts believe that the Chinese government <clears throat> has industrialized with a very, you know, export-focused approach, but now has turned the corner to their internal market. And as they, you know, are seeking to have uh, folks continue to, to, to have rising economic reality, you know, if, if they fail to do that, they're going to have lots more political instability. <clears throat> they're, they're, they believe they're going to be able to be much more inwardly focused. And as they develop uh, mature markets, basically they're not going to have to live in this interdependent world, which we um, have, have developed. So anyway, the last uh, paragraph of the, of the second uh Last sentence of the last paragraph here says, Made in China 2025 is shaping up to be the central villain, the real existential threat to U.S. technological leadership. And so anyway, I think this is a this is definitely a big part of the of the puzzle um, it is worth talking about. But I would like to get to the Tech Manifesto article and then, then let's jump into CES because you've got a ton of great links to talk sure. about. I want to give a shout out to uh, Baratund Thurston. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I believe you are. This is an article that he wrote back in June of 2018 called a tech, uh, on Medium, a, a new tech manifesto, Six Demands from a Citizen to Big Tech. I've almost finished listening to it. There's like a four-hour, you know, 2018 best of This Week in Tech podcast, which I'd really recommend because, like, that is a great podcast. I, I listen regularly throughout the year to different episodes. <clears throat> but by, by listening to the, you know, best of in 2018, I've heard a lot of things that I missed because I, I don't listen to that show every week. And so um, – Hit, uh, first and talking about this article, one of the things that I like the, the best about it is it's kind of the Alan K optimism of let's invent the future. 
right? Let's just not accept this whole dystopian, oh, the sky is falling, we can't do anything, despair, and and be frozen and think that we're not able to shape it, because we can. Uh, we're able to do all kinds of things, both individually and especially collectively, in terms of, you know, influencing corporations and, and, and you know, advocating for legislation, etc. Um, but it, in terms of the technology correction, and when we look at privacy and data, and the real bad place, frankly, that we are today, with this enormous cloud of data about us that has been collected by companies and we've freely given away. And, you know, you and I and your mom and my parents and just all, all of us that are on Facebook now as adults and then young kids, we're just continuing to give it away. So he's advocating for transparency around data collection and usage, changing data defaults from open to closed, respecting rights to our own data, um, diversifying who's at the table, meaning that, you know, it's got to be more than, uh, you know, some of the very not diverse, you know, groups of, of both developers and, and investors and entrepreneurs behind many of these companies. Uh, we need new laws and new rules, which we're starting to see some of in Europe, but we need to see here as well with, with some regulation and not imagining that a company like Facebook can regulate itself. And then enabling users um, to collect and analyze our own data. So those are six different things that he includes. And I, I thought it was phenomenal, but especially the, the optimistic tone that he took. So any, any thoughts or reactions that you've got to that manifesto, Jason? Yeah, I, I enjoyed reading it, and I, I have a vague memory of maybe uh, reading this back in um, uh, back in July when it was released, but uh, or June, excuse me, when it was released. But the thing I keep going back to is this notion that um, we 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 can't be in the wild west anymore, right? And this is true of of, of any uh, technological revolution, uh, any industrial revolution, any uh, evolution forward that it starts off being pretty wild and then it starts to evolve over time to where we come up with sets of rules and expectations based on how we want to interact with each other in society. And that's certainly, I think, where we're at right now in 2019, uh, you know, again, going back to the so-called uh, uh, tech correction. But, you know, I think this notion that we need to build tools that don't just take advantage of people's ignorance or uh, maybe uh, fear of, of kind of digging into the, the tool's uh, background and, and just assuming that people want to be very conservative about the way they utilize their data or their engagement um, and that there's a, a series of goals in addition to financial gain for the developers or for the owners or the perpetuators of these technologies, then I think that that's something that, that's really important. And, um, you know, I, I, I felt like that there's been a, a, a lot of attention in the last, I'd say, three years about student data privacy. It's a discussion I know that's going on in schools in Montana, uh, but this notion that we shouldn't just assume that uh, not just because federal laws demand that we pay attention to student privacy, but that maybe students and their parents don't want things like their sensitive uh, behavior data to be uh, on the internet. Uh, you know, probably not in shareable format to where people can log in and see your stuff, but be in a place maybe where you don't want it to be or susceptible to hackers or interfacing with other technological pieces. I, I get how big data could help us understand humans better, understand one another better, understand complex psychological precepts better, but there's a point of which, you know, the singularity of data has diminishing returns in comparison to what you're giving up for that. So I love attempts at this to try to, um, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, uh, you know, empower people to uh, empower themselves beyond just what an app can do to connect you to others or provide a, a service or a, a, a parlor trick, really, uh, to, to make things happen. So, yeah, I love this, and I, I really hope that, uh, you know, and I know there, I've seen a lot of documents like this in the last 24 months since the 2016 election, but um, I know there's a lot of articles this week about uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, the founder and CEO of Facebook, um, and uh, what he is likely to do in the upcoming months to deal with the, you know, the, the Facebook problem, which is probably something you could trademark now. It's the Facebook problem trademark. 
but the bottom line is is that we, we if we, unless we want to abandon these tools whole or trade in the remarkable advances that many of these technologies brought us and maybe more broadly to classrooms or to education or to communication or to interaction or to entertainment or to any noun in in 2019 then this is the type of stuff we have to adopt Absolutely. Well, hey, there's been some stuff going on in Vegas. I just I've heard a rumor. And by the way, I know you went there in person. So real quickly, highlight from your CES experience. Was that four years ago? When did you go? Oh, man, I can't remember the year now. Seven, eight, nine years ago. And um, and it was only it wasn't even for the whole thing. And I was just in, in on the floor for two days. Um, really amazing um, experience um, and um, an unbelievable uh like dump of stuff, right? Like it's a, uh, 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 a lot of people call ISTE a trade show, right? Which in, in a lot of ways it is, right? Or you a know, boat show. I've heard uh, Gary Steger say a boat show. Yeah, and that's it's a very legitimate way of putting it. And to be honest, in the last couple of years, I felt like the inter- interaction with vendors has been the most valuable part of most of the conferences that I go to. And part of that's because my role in the world has changed. Um, as now that I have budget authority, there seems to be different conversations when I people show up. People want to talk to Dr. Neifer. Well, yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> Once they know you have a checkbook, it tends to change a little bit. Um, but uh, it's it's a massive conference, so large that uh, it, it it's it's located in many places throughout Vegas, and it's everything from yes, the Samsungs of the world and the Googles of the world and um, the LGs of the world are are absolutely available there. But there's also thousands and thousands of companies that are much smaller that are just trying to get into the marketplace. There's usually a Chinese pavilion where a lot of companies you've never heard of before are trying to make. Make um, a, a, a buck in the international technology trade. They're not selling the next new TV. They're instead trying to sell you um, e-readers. That you—that uh, was the one of the big things that the, the year I attended was uh, kind of off-market e-readers that were going to change the way people read books. And of course, you know, the e-reader has been dominated by really one company, and that's that's Amazon. So um, I've picked a couple things out that I think are interesting things that have happened there. There's just no way for us to come up with, for lack of a better way of putting it, a comprehensive look at CES in context of um, our, uh, you know, humble podcast here. But I thought there were a couple things here that I thought were worthy. So the first one, and a lot of this is from the the Verge's coverage uh, from today's edition of The Verge. Great article about how this year's laptops, oddly enough, look a lot like last year's laptops. And the author of that particular article, uh, Chaim Gartenberg, says that's a good thing um, because it's better at this point to uh, kind of, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, refine laptops and and really any technology device as opposed to... to you know, try to create a new hotness that's not there. And so, uh, when talking about um, really everyone uh, at, at the show, uh, Lenovo, Dell, um, HP, these are all manufacturers that showed up this year with new models, but they're only incrementally better than last year's models. And there seems to be some notion that. Uh, 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 there's a uh, we should be spending some time just tweaking to make it better because there's not a lot of newness we can add to that. And so they focused um, on small design tweaks in the flagship laptop from Lenovo. That's the ThinkPad X1 Carbon, a thin, beautiful laptop um, that this year, I think they refined the USB-C and they added an optional carbon fiber weave cover, which is definitely not something um, that... uh, um, uh, is necessary. Their other major uh, uh, laptop is the X1 Yoga, which is a, a, a laptop that does the, the tenting thing. And this year, the, the big uh, improvement was they added the option for aluminum case. Um, I'll give you another example of something that I know for a fact bothered a lot of people. The XPS 13, which is Dell's uh, major laptop model. It's their their thin ultrabook. It's an absolutely beautiful machine if you've never seen one in person. Um, the boss at work carries around an XPS 13. He loves the laptop. He hates one thing about it, and that's that the webcam is located in the lower left-hand corner of the screen, and it's so terrible to use. We actually call it the gel cam 
at uh, NTDA because uh, the folks that are carrying around XPS 13s at work uh, and all, for those of you that, that watch us on video or watch it live, like this is what it looks like, right? Like you, you kind of see the person's chin so you can see that I'm, I'm kind of trimmed up under the beard, but um, like it's the jowl cam, right? It's so bad that, that, that my boss carries around an extra webcam that he clips to the top of the laptop because you know, it's, it's like it's 2004 or something and there's not an integrated webcam because the cam is so bad. They're moving that to where it was before, the top of the screen, which is a welcome um, uh, notion to people from a around the world. Uh, but little changes are dominating this year. And I would have to say... That's a very welcome thing to me because I think that uh, you know, like the iPhone, like Android phones, like the articles we talked about earlier, it's probably more about refining at this point than coming up with something that's so radically different that it justifies, um, you know, an immediate uh, update over last year's model. So, anything interesting to you about laptops at CES, Doctor Fryer? I'm going to be very cursory in my comments because my my reading of CES is, or of articles has been kind of kind of limited. So you know, I just I, I think I'm most curious about how we're going to see hybrids. Are we going to continue to see the merge of the touch to the you know um, traditional laptop? Are we going to keep having you know separate devices? I don't know. Maybe we've reached a peak there, and it's going to have to come to glasses or some some other form factor. Um, but uh, yeah, it's. I don't know. It's I, I don't see from a technology director's standpoint <clears throat> a lot of reason for us, you know, to try and push to be on a further cutting edge. Again, we're we're still looking at the older MacBook Air, um, not you know, not the absolute brand new one because it's very functional. It's going to work for a long time for us. And frankly, we're not ready to ditch USB A and and standard you know USB drives and things like that. So right. anyway, CES is. I would I would all just I guess say that as an overall right. We all can be drawn to the shiny and the pretty, um, but generally that's not where we're going to be investing a lot of dollars in the enterprise. We're going to be seeing what's happening and what's coming, but a lot of what we see at CES, people are, I mean, companies are frankly testing things to see if, if it's going to make it in the market and, and make a dent. Um, and so it's probably going to be pretty rare that you're going to see something that's brand new and you're going to say, hey, this is going to transform my classroom next month. Right. Um, something also announced today by our friends at Google, and I think this will be of interest of you, Wes, in light of the fact that, that uh, Google Home Minis are uh, dotted around the Friar household. But Google announced today several major advancements to the Google Assistant, which is the integrated assistant on Android phones, but also uh, is obviously the operating system and, and, and core functionality of Google Home devices. Um, all sorts of interesting things, including... Some what it seems to be real time interpreter modes that can translate conversations. Um, there are some modes that deal with new functionality um, uh, to control devices inside the house. Uh, the um, there's new messaging, including auto punctuation when you're dictating text messages and other uh, 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 speech to text um, on the process. Uh, new hands free control. Uh, for devices, uh, including JBL and Anchor devices inside the car. And it seems like that the Google Assistant, uh, which is the main competitor to uh, Amazon's ecosystem, the divine Miss A, as we like to call her on the show, uh, that uh, there seems to be advancements there. So I would assume that those of you that are deep in the Google ecosystem from a, a kind of smart home standpoint will rejoice at the things announced today. And I would say, I don't have that link in front of me. I'll try to find it. There's a product that was announced that was basically, it looked like a charger because it does, you know, plug into your uh, your cigarette lighter, which isn't an interesting. We still have those in cars, but they're so useful. Um, and it's a very good microphone or set of microphones that brings the Google Assistant. It's by uh, JVC, I think. And, and so it, Somehow it's able to work, and I don't know if it's just with JVC stereos or with other stereos, to, to cut in and, you know, sort of over, is that called overdubbing? When it, anyway, lowers the volume level. Um, but one of the issues and problems that people have identified is difficulty with their smartphone in the noise of the car and everything else that's happening you know, effectively using it. So you put this into your cigarette lighter and it's a, evidently a great microphone to be able to use. And then you can do all of these additional advanced things with the Google assistant. Um, it's still going to use your phone, I guess, as the, as the connector, but I thought that's pretty exciting. So 
<clears throat> I'm definitely using the Google Assistant more than ever to listen to podcasts, to set you know timers in the kitchen, um, to make announcements throughout our home. Um, you know, <clears throat> absolutely love it. And uh, also when I'm on the go, um, you know, I'm I'm using the iOS version. But uh, I, did you mention the article where it was coming to Maps? Is that um, that's what I was going to do next. Go ahead. Yeah. No. Well, no, no. Go, go for that. Are you excited about the uh, integration with Maps? I am. This is something that was actually announced uh, at Google I.O. last year. So that would be the late spring conference where uh, Google announces new functionality and features to Android and other parts of the Google uh, operating system arena. Uh, but in essence, it allows folks to do a lot more control while you're engaged in Google Maps. And so it's not just like searching, or I'm sorry, it's not just uh, listening to you to transcribe your commands. It's adding a smarter component to Google Maps. That's that's a a wonderful thing. And, you know, frankly, what uh, I think maps and guidance and directions and location-based services is really what I I think smartphones, uh, you know, despite the tracking component to it, is one of the core features that I think people would have a hard time giving up in 2019. So I'm really excited to see uh, the Google Assistant coming to Google Maps. And this is really the Star Trek <clears throat> home of the future, right? Computer, Earl Grey hot. You know, we're not we're not getting, uh, I'm not getting tea, you know, uh, prepared for me with the Google Assistant, but being able to use our voices, make things happen in the real physical world, um, and then being able to just, you know, I think start to use that as a very uh, natural and, you know, just go voice for me and probably my wife too with texting is, you know, a, a primary way that I get information, you know, into my device. And as we think about schools, I think keyboarding is still important, but we need to keep our minds open to the different ways that we're going to, and we are today, you know, getting information, you know, into a device. And uh, I think I wrote this in a blog post recently. You know, if you want a front row seat to how artificial intelligence is impacting society, use some kind of a smart assistant and, you know, take note of the increasing function that is having, you know, week to week, month to month. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and then one other hardware piece, and then we'll talk about some of the crappier stuff from, from CES. Uh, uh, two different manufacturers, Acer and HP, have announced that they are going to release um, AMD-based Chromebooks in 2019. And uh, Chrome Unbox, my favorite place to go for for Chrome news, um, announced this with uh, you know pretty pretty breathless announcement about this because I think they were uh, excited about the notion. From my reading of this, is that the uh, the AMD processors that will be integrated into the Acer and HP models is actually an older AMD processor, but there there's two advantages of this from, from what I'm able to see. The first one is that this will lead to cheaper Chromebooks, uh, which, to be honest, it's hard to imagine <laughs> cheaper than we've got now. But more importantly, these are cheaper, faster Chromebooks. And so the Pentium chips that are dominant in mid- and lower-range Chromebooks uh, could be replaced by these AMD chip machines and still have faster processing power. And as AMD has become a, a bigger competitor in the last 24 months than it was in the four or five years previous to that, it's exciting to see that there might be some Chromebooks that are medium Chromebooks, medium uh, uh, power Chromebooks that could be in that you know, $250 to $350 range that come with a processor that beats the somewhat efficient and uh, power sipping Pentium chips. The N4200 is the popular one in 2018 Chromebooks, but um, I'm glad to see more competitors in the space um, of Chromebooks. One other thing on the CES note, and I think it's in there, um, it mentions these, uh, it's called activity cards. Um, oh, this yeah. Is, this didn't roll out. I was just trying it on my laptop. It doesn't work. It's rolled out on mobile first. So you want to see some evidence of Google, you know, where they believe the majority of users are accessing the web today on their mobile device. You know, go to Google, and we're, we're used to autofill, right? And sometimes this can reveal, uh, you know, sexist and racist trends and just pretty bad stuff when you put somebody's name and you're like why is it saying that you know it's a reflection in some cases it has been of searches that people are doing it's trying to to guess it's like that's that's not autofill what is that called there's a uh, predictive right predictive um, search anyway now when you tap on google like i'm in safari on my iphone um, it shows me my last five searches that of, of the things that i search for so it's a way to 
up where you've left off. And it's an interesting, you know, enhancement that Google is giving to the search experience. Absolutely. And, and, and personally, as a very aggressive researcher on the Internet, in part for a small business that I work on that's, that's high school debate related, the new search features, uh, frankly, are amazing. And I'm really excited about that notion. So um, then there's a couple of articles that to kind of talk about the weird and which, and by the way, there's no way to comprehensively report on the weird stuff that comes out at this conference. There's just no way. Um, but the Washington Post has uh, both a video um, and a uh, kind of a, a description of things that they found that was fantastic. Um, and then also kind of weird. Um, it includes there is a roll up TV that LG has released that is probably going to be um, um, uh, extremely expensive. It's the LG Signature OLED TV R, and I think the R stands for roll-up, but in essence, it is a box, a long box, kind of looks like a big, long um, a TV speaker, side TV speaker that you can get uh, you know, to augment your your uh, um, audio. And instead, you set it up and you press a button and a screen kind of rolls up out of a um, kind of a spindle that's located inside of the box. And um, it, uh, interesting, fantastic bizarre, probably wickedly expensive, but this idea of foldable screens or collapsible screens seems to be finally coming to the marketplace. Um, and, and I will absolutely note that CES is also famous for what's referred to as vaporware or vapor hardware, which is that there's prototypes at CES, but they can't get it to market or there's not enough popularity to, to make the time or effort. Um, another fantastic item, the so-called self-driving follow-along suitcase from Ovis. Ovis, a maker of premium travel products. And the best that I can tell based on the video that I have seen is that you carry along with you a little, probably a fob-like thing, right? Something that identifies you as the owner of the suitcase. And the suitcase, in essence, follows you around everywhere without you touching it, right? It's like a self-perpetual uh, moving airport luggage device thing. Um, of course, when I see this, having traveled recently in the era of banning of so-called smart bags that have batteries in them, I could imagine this. there's no way this thing makes it onto a modern airplane with the, with the perception that battery devices are, are bad. The Galaxy Note 7, uh, uh, probably the primary example of that. Um, Wes, are you in the market for a smart bag that follows you around everywhere? No, I am not. And I think, you know, this This is a creativity and entrepreneurship. We're, we're continuing to see folks, you know, throw things against the wall and see what sticks. Um, so, no, I'm, I'm good without my smart bag. Um, other quick things that were interesting, uh, there are there were a number of robots uh, available at CES this year. A lot of the articles that I actually skipped over for the show were things like the nine kinds of robots you find at CES. And, and robots have been a longtime fascination of the conference and show. But uh, the, the, the Lovot, which is a kind of dog-looking thing, um, I don't know how to describe it other than that, but it is uh, it has 50 sensors and cameras in it. Um, and, you know, really just wants to hang out with you. Um, uh, $3,000 for two of them. Um, the reason why you get two uh, is that I think they play with each other. Um, you know, I hashtag get a dog. Um, there is a, a, a virtual reality headset that, that is mood altering. It's called Trip, which is, you know, obviously very purposefully uh, named and then uh, new smart glasses, uh, which are they're finally becoming smarter glasses that don't look like you know the terrible um, uh, uh, Google uh, attempt at that from a couple years ago. Um, and then also um, some new smart home devices, like for example, the folks at Ring, now owned by Amazon, have released a new security cam for your peephole called the Ring Door View Cam. 
Um, by the way, 8K TVs are still trying to uh, peak out. These are actually a couple of years old, but they haven't found a way to bring them to marketplace in a meaningful way. So 8K TVs are available now from Samsung, Sony, and LG. And then um, Google Assistant is the other piece here for that. So um, the one last article I would highlight, because uh, it, there's a lot of coverage of this one, um, there, there's been a lot of talk the last 16 months about foldable cell phone technologies, right? And there seems to be one um, that's available now. It's called the, the Royale FlexPi, which is a terrible name. But um, basically, this is a foldable um, a cell phone. It's running Android. Um, it starts off in kind of a square, like once in like a tablet mode, it's like in a square model and then you fold it together and then it takes the shape of a more traditional, like a candy bar shaped phone. And I, I think it just looks like something that's begging to be dropped and broken, right? Like I, I don't get the fascination of it, but apparently, um, it's real enough that it's it's sitting around. People have it in their hands. The headline from The Verge said, the world's first foldable phone is charmingly awful. <laughs> the subtitle of this article is, you asked for this. Uh, like, you wanted this culture. But uh, apparently there is some attempt to make the, um, the foldable... Royale Flex Pal, uh, $1,400, by the way, to get this particular device. And, you know, Wes, um, I know how much you missed your Android experience when you went back to the iPhone. Maybe the foldable screen will bring you back to Camp Android. Yeah, I don't I don't think so. Um, you know, travel, I mean, <clears throat> I went to Egypt, right? That was that was a, a fantastic opportunity and so I went Android to uh hopefully be a little bit safer at that time not having all my iPhone data which was I, I don't think is securable. But, you know, I've been looking at this you know curiously as well. Seems like an amazing tech. Here's what might bring me back and it's the uh, in, in unfortunately no, it just Strangely, this is a Microsoft thing, but the Windows phone that, that basically you can plug into any monitor and have a full-blown, you know, sort of desktop experience. If, if we see that kind of functionality, which is really the software functionality running on the device, that might, you know, sway me. But at this point, none of this other stuff is that attractive. So. Okay. Well, and, you know, next week I'm sure there will be stories about um, – um, uh, other devices that came out as part of the show. I haven't seen a lot of coverage yet, for example, of the kind of, well, the lesser known pavilions. The China Pavilion is the most popular one. There's also an Indian Pavilion and a Southeast Asian Pavilion. Um, I didn't get a chance today to look at my favorite website for CES coverage because I wanted to stay with the big big picture stuff. Uh, Lilliputin, which, which is the, um, uh, I, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, they deal with, uh, you know, mini computers like you know seven or eight years ago was the mini atx movement that started this website but they have a grand old time at ces every year because they find stuff that almost no other mainstream uh tech outlet is covering so i'll, I'll take a look at them after the conference is over with um uh, because they're they're sure to find some stuff that you probably couldn't believe uh it would be available um uh, including you know e-readers and ginormous e-ink screens for the home and things that are probably aren't on the top of your list one final last article, and then we can do Geeks of the Week. Um, this is a Washington Post article that's pretty pretty fascinating. This is from today on January 9th. Who was most likely to share fake news in 2016? Seniors. And a couple quick quotes from this, because so oftentimes when it comes to technology, right, we're blaming the millennials, we're blaming the kids. It's all about the teens who are acting poorly. <clears throat> These are a couple quotes. According to our data, Fewer than 1 in 10, 8.5% of our respondents shared links from fake news domains. For comparison, about 1 in 4 Americans during the last weeks of the 2016 campaign read or clicked on at least one fake news article, regardless of how they encountered it. <clears throat> and then in terms of, uh, the, there's a good graph there, more than 1 in 10 or 11.3% of people over age 65 shared links from a fake news site, while only 3% of those 18 to 29 did so. So, Jason, my last question, how will we help our senior citizens acquire media literacy and stop spreading fake news for the upcoming electoral cycle? 
Um, I think it's part of it is that we need to be having conversations with our with our, our parents. Um, I, I think that's part of if you have a senior parent in your life or perhaps a senior grandparent in your life, I think it's okay to have conversations with them about uh, you know, news sources. And th- we've kind of built some memes around this in the United States. I noticed in 2018, for example, that the whole you can't tech politics at Thanksgiving meme was pretty, uh, a pretty pervasive around our culture and society. But uh, other than the awkwardness of when your family perhaps believes different political views than you do and, and, and how that discussion can be somewhat uh, challenging, I think it's okay to question your parents um, and you know, make sure that they're looking at good, legitimate news sources. And it's not, it's not liberal versus conservative. That's not really what it is. There's great... Uh, uh, conservative-leaning news coverage on 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 the web. There's good left-leaning con- uh, uh, news coverage on the web. It's when people are sharing things that are clearly fake. You got to call them out on it, and um, you know, let them know that that's not a legitimate source. And um, I think that's part of helping build a culture where where we start policing some of these things ourselves. And I would, I would just add quickly to that, that, you know, simply sending a Snopes article or pointing out that someone's wrong, we need is, is really in many cases not effective. We need to look at the psychology of how people's behavior as well as perception shift. And I think some of that research absolutely does have to do with conversations with people inside their family circle, folks who are trusted. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, it really is an important puzzle because <clears throat> our need for media literacy, digital citizenship, all those things is certainly not limited to just the kids that are in school and, you know, the young. So shall we geek of the week it? Let's do it. Um, I'll start, Wes, and then you can uh, uh, finish us up. I would like to share this week a uh, something that has been part of my life now for about a year, and it's really made a big difference in, in my life when it comes to identifying things. The tile is an amazing piece of technology, and they're getting to where the tile is becoming a, a really a better piece of technology. But um, I'll give you an example of this. The tile is a little Bluetooth device that can either hang on your keychain, or in my case, my keychain, there's one in my backpack, and I actually have one in my wallet. This is the wallet I carry around. It's a little uh, kind of minimalist wallet, and and part of the reason why I carry one of those is because I used to carry around, and this will be a dated cultural reference, I used to carry around a George Costanza wallet, and some of you may know what that means, Um, but uh, an overly packed wallet, but this is a tile that's sitting in my wallet, but essentially it's a little USB beacon that uh, talks to your phone, and when you lose it, um, you can find it again because it will point out to you the last place it saw the item, right? You can also uh, have the tile uh, set off a noise so you could find like a couple mornings ago I, I lost my keys in a moment of rush. I would have found them eventually, but I just pressed the little button on my tile app on my phone, and I found them again. What's amazing about the tile is that it uh, also uses other tile users to spot tiles in a vicinity of other people's phones. And so what I've noticed is that I've never had to use this myself, but I'll get uh, text notification, or I'm sorry, uh, notifications on my phone that an anonymous user, and they're always anonymous, anonymous user has thanked you, and this has happened to me twice now when I've been through airports, thanked you for helping to find something that they were looking for. So in other words, you know, it anonymously, you know, smelled a tile via a uh, low energy uh, Bluetooth and then sent that information to Tile Central and help people find lost stuff. They used to be not great because they were uh, basically consumables. There was an integrated battery you couldn't replace, but Tile like 7.0, which is what I think we're on now, has little replaceable batteries. I have one on my phone. I have one in my wallet. I have one in my backpack. Um, my wife is putting one in her purse. I'm going to put one on my little constant glucose monitor machine uh, because this thing is, is pretty expensive. The phone itself becomes a tile because it's got the app on there, but it's a great uh, tile is the the, uh, the brand name. I have a link to the Amazon page for tiles. They're on sale all the time. Great piece of, of IoT devices. You know, you inspired me, I think, in our uh, show about uh, gifts, 
to order tiles, uh, and I had ordered a four-pack and gave it to my wife, who I think has felt offended that I was, you know, it was an age, age-based, age um, she's a little older than me, um, you know, gift. But anyway, I'm, I, we got to break it out. The, the tiles in our household have not been set up yet, and I think they, they may be later tonight, so thanks for that reminder. Uh, my Geek of the Week is a quick software app. It's called Amphetamine for Mac OS. Shout out to Jeremy King at at work who uh, let me know about this today. <clears throat> for a number of years, I have used and advocated for folks to use a program called Caffeine, which puts a little uh, coffee cup up in your um, you know, s- system tray or menu bar or whatever in the upper right corner you know, by the clock. But that hasn't been updated in a, whole, in a long time. I still use it. <clears throat> but if you want to actually, uh, at school, push out Mac software now through a mobile device management platform, you really need to generally do that with software applications that are available in the Mac app store. So amphetamine is the same thing basically as caffeine, but it is updated and it's available free in the Mac store. So I'm Wes Fryer, W Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org on the blog. I am Jason Neifer, uh, Tech Savvy Teach on Twitter. I blog for NCC, Northwest Council for Computer Education blog, .ncc.org, where you should go right now to ncc.org and sign up for the February conference in fabulous Seattle, Washington. This business here, though, is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a weekly podcast. We're on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central. I think it's 3 a.m. UTC, although we just change that every week and doesn't seem to matter for the folks listening. Uh, you can see us live every week on YouTube, or you can download the podcast, either by going to our website where you can get little tiny audio versions of the EdTech Situation Room, or we are at almost every major podcast directory. So wherever you're down Download new podcast. Look for the Tech Situation Room. Uh, we hope to see you in a future episode. We appreciate those that listen. Um, feedback is great via either our Twitter accounts or, ed te- or at EdTechSR, which where you can get to both of us. Um, and we hope to see you or interact with you on a future episode. Thank you, and good morning, good day, good night.